Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the 2012 AWP conference in Chicago. The recording features Jessica Anthony and Luis Urea. I am with Luis Alberto Urea at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs conferences in Chicago, Illinois. Born in Tijuana, Mexico to a Mexican father and an American mother, Urea is the author of 13 books and has won numerous prizes in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. In 2004, his nonfiction book, The Devil's Highway, won the Lannan Literary Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His 2005 novel, The Hummingbird's Daughter, tells a fictionalized version of the true story of his great-aunt, Teresa Urea, sometimes known as the Saint of Cabura and the Mexican Joan of Arc. The book, which involved 20 years of research and writing, won the Kiriyama Prize in fiction and was widely praised as the best book of the year. Urea's most recent novel, Queen of America, follows Teresa and her father at the turn of the century as they cross the border into America and find themselves searching for identity at the mercy of industry. In the Chicago Tribune, writer and book critic Alan Schuess offers this praise, the novelist's powers work their way in this entertaining and intelligent historical fiction, studded with delights, rich in image and metaphor, the voice strong and at the same time comforting as it creates a universe replete with a multiplicity of characters complete in body and soul. And, as in the best of fiction, though the novelist himself is not physically present, his voice speaks worlds. Welcome, Luis, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In a recent interview with Terry Hong, you said, I was always a writer. I was. I was always the writer in the family, always the writer in high school. Um, and I'm curious because many writers often say that they were readers first and only discovered later on that you were a writer. How did you know that you were a writer at such a young age? Uh, you know, I was also the reader. I, I was just a fanatical reader. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this moment when I knew to my bones, I think, that I couldn't do anything in life other than something in the arts. It just was me. I was a good visual artist. I was a good actor. And I found out that what really made me excited was telling stories. And there comes that moment when you want to do the thing that you love. You know, you, you read and read and read, and you think, wow, I'd like to try that. But I never believed people like me would be authors. Authors were something beyond human, you know. <laughs> and I thought, wow, people from Tijuana, you know, people from my sort of slum neighborhood, they, they don't write books, certainly. And, uh, you know... I, I've told this story before, but I was also a music freak, and I listened to music all night, every night. I couldn't sleep very well. And, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen, and, uh, of course, Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, you know, anybody who had lyrics, that's what fascinated me. And I think there came this moment when, as a, as a probably ninth grader, tenth grader, I stumbled upon Jim Morrison's book of lyrics, you know, and poems, uh -huh, Lords yeah. and the New Creatures. Mm -hmm. And on the same bookshelf was Bob Dylan's Tarantula and Leonard Cohen's Spice Box of Earth. And I thought, oh my God, these guys write. They write. Yeah. You don't just put on leather pants and have songs come out. You write them. <laughs> and, you know, that with my fascination for story just made me go a little crazy. And I started 
trying it for myself. And I thought I had discovered some kind of, like, HP Lovecraft ritual that nobody <laughs> knew about but me, right? <laughs> and every, every line I wrote, I thought, this is going to definitely change the fabric of reality somehow. And, that, you know, in that madness, it just, it just takes over. And you don't realize that you're practicing. You don't realize you're doing homework. Because if it had been offered to me as an assignment, I would have not done it. I mean, were you the storyteller in your family? Did you? I was the story collector. They were all storytellers. I was lucky enough to have a family of incredibly loquacious and twisted people who, <laughs> you know, and were liars and fabricators. And that clash between American and Mexican cultures made a lot of sparks. And so I, I felt sort of compelled to pay attention to all of it. I thought that was our duty. I thought we were supposed to, you know, keep a record, sort of a spiritual record of everybody's life and details. And um, being caught between two cultures was interesting because certainly for the Mexican relatives, I ended up being sort of a, an unofficial translator, helping lots of people translate. So, so at a very early age, I was entrusted with people's stories. For example, I had a cousin named Margo, and Margo had fallen in love with a Marine in Vietnam. And he would write her these incredible, rather filthy letters. And I was a little guy, you know. <laughs> and she'd bring them to me. Que dice, que dice. And I'd be like, uh-oh. So I'd have to read this, you know. And then she'd dictate to me in Spanish, and I'd have to write the letter back to him in English. So I was definitely into a weird sort of R-rated world in about fifth, sixth grade. But that's great. But it was amazing to 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 have story pass through you yeah. at such an early age, right? So I I was the keeper. And so was there a reward in your family? Like you tell a good story and you get a reaction? Oh yeah, 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 man. I mean, you know, in the family, people who had a plum, people who could come up with a witticism on the spot. Mm -hmm or what we call piropos in Mexico, you know, the art of instantaneously saying something insanely romantic and seductive to a woman as soon as you... That, that was all rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> so, in places in which I wasn't very good, you know, athletics or music or all the things the family thought was important, I could outstrip them with Gab. Well, you know, in the telling of Teresa's story through two novels, I think you've actually done what a lot of writers dream of doing, but could never really pull off, which is working with a family story to create this incredibly vibrant and fully imagined fiction. So I'm curious, because you're a prolific writer of nonfiction and also poetry, of course, what made you decide to fictionalize Teresa? It's probably what took 20 years, right? Because yeah. I couldn't find out what the story wanted. It's a little mystical, but since we're talking about, you know, healers and medicine people and shamans in those books, it fits. But, you know, there's a certain moment at which the story tells you what it wants, what it is. It's like meeting somebody. And that story was so huge and sprawling and in some ways nebulous because so much of it had disappeared in time. And I had to keep going deeper and deeper in time to find clues and find data you know, at first I thought it was going to be a footnoted nonfiction book. And I say this flippantly in interviews, but it's the truth. And that is, you come to a moment when you realize you can't footnote a dream. And you've entered into a dream world. And it's particularly applicable to this because, you know, a lot of the medicine people work in dream time. 
to get the information that they used. And, uh, you know, suddenly I found myself in this odd compositional dream time to the point that they would actually give me dreams. They'd say, okay, you're going to have a dream in three days and then tell me what you dreamt and I'll tell you what it means. And I'd never had people place dreams in my mind before. So, you know, through both books, there are dreams that were actually the shamanic dreams I was given in sequence. And you realize that those dreams actually, in a weird sort of imagistic way, are narrating the book, too. They become a framework. for. So I made them her dreams. Things like that mm -hmm. um, were, were mysterious and, and too rich not to go with. Talk about this return to Teresa. I mean, my, <laughs> my God, this is... The completion of Hummingbird must have been such an extraordinary relief in and of oh itself. Oh my God, I was like, <laughs> never again. <laughs> and then... <laughs> yeah, here it comes. Well, you know, first of all, in my house, part of the religion was books, right? My parents, fortunately for me, loved books. And I think in my family, at that time, I think the highest accomplishment was being James Mishner, right? If you did a giant book that began with the volcano that erupted that led to a dinosaur that then somehow, you know, those <laughs> that became settlers coming to Colorado, those kind of books. So I always had that in my mind. And I thought, well, when I, when I, when I do this, I want to do an old school, giant, epic American novel. That's right. And, you know, frankly, it was just too much information. And I realized that at the end of the first half of her life, in Hummingbird's Daughter, I was ready to keel over and die of exhaustion. And I couldn't imagine my readers getting to the halfway point and saying, oh boy, here's another 600 pages to go. That's great, you know. <laughs> uh, maybe for Stephen King or George R.R. R. Martin, but I think I, you know. So I stopped, and I always suspected there'd be more um, because I wanted to finish her life out. And it turned out to be a really great break to have, you know, a couple of years, do another book, Mm -hmm. change gears because I realized that the transition from pre-revolutionary indigenous ranch life Mexico to industrial revolution United States was so huge that it was it was kind of a science fiction book I, I always say you know now when I look back on it I think that train trip at the end of the first book and the beginning of the new book is like a spaceship trip she leaves her planet and takes this incredible fire-belching machine and lands in a complete other world where they look like her, but they don't speak like her, and there are bizarre, you know, automobiles and electric lights. That was in play. And I realized, particularly researching her American life and, you know, going to New York City where she lived on East 28th Street, it became this revelation to me that when she got to the U.S., she became Lady Gaga. You know, she went, from, she went from being a saint to being a pop star and not knowing how are you a pop star? What do you do? And how do you, how do you still try to be in touch with God when you're, when everywhere you go, there, there are photographers and autograph hounds and men and people are hitting on you and you'd really love to have a boyfriend. You're only 19 years old. Right. You know, and you're thinking, now I've been there, done that. They killed all my followers. I'm, I've been in prison. I've been dogged everywhere. People are trying to kill me. I would just like to fall in love and have a family. I'm done with this. But she can't get out. She's almost like Michael Corleone, you know, in The Godfather. <laughs> and uh, so that was the challenge, you know. How does, how? Does, so it was really good for me to have the break and sort of recalibrate my thinking and then attack it from this point of view. What, it, what would it be like to be here? 
Well, I mean, how did you even know where to begin with the second book? I mean, I'm thinking about this great juxtaposition of the violence of these writers, and Teresa is plucking her eyebrows. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. how did you find like what? How yeah, did you get maybe to that maybe moment? I'm maybe I'm I'm ripping off Truman Capote or something. You know, because, <laughs> you know, in Cold Blood, the Clutter family's <laughs> eating pies and stuff, and then here comes this this terrifying virus of destruction. Yeah. You know, but I I thought since in my mind it's the second half of the same book. Yeah. You know, it's got to pick up right after they get here. Mm -hmm. And they're already sort of lost, like Tomas says. It was my chance to make a lot of social commentary when he says, wait a minute, I've come to the United States and all I see are Mexicans. Where are the Americans, you know? I'm in Arizona, it's all Mexicans. Um, and she's trying to find her way, and she's already learning that ladies in this country, you know, pluck their eyebrows, my dear, and we... We powder our cheeks, make ourselves pale, and she's complaining, you know, this is terrible, what's wrong with you? Um, at the same time, they're trying to do this life, this other thing is pursuing them. These furies are coming after them. Mm -hmm. And that was historically true. They came here and thought, okay, okay, that's over. And then Diaz had decided he'd made an error sparing her and tried to kill her long distance and sent assassins to try to get her. So I thought that was a really interesting terrifying note at the beginning that as she's yeah. trying really hard to find her way into our lives in the U.S. and maybe live happily ever after, the demons are still following and there's, there's not going to be an escape. So um, to, to me that, that, that added the, the kind of friction when you realize that she's not going to get away and there's going to be this threat all the time for her probably. I think she would have liked nothing more than to have just had a happy life. And it's interesting, this second book, especially because of the first book, I've been in touch with her great-granddaughters and Tomas's great-grandchildren. And they, they gave me a lot of their direct family lore. But what was interesting to me is that nobody ever spoke about her. She was like this complete secret, and they would not share uh, with the younger generations a lot of stories. So a lot of the grandkids and great-grandkids don't know. Why do you suppose that is? I don't know. I think it was such a tumultuous thing and such a strange thing. And, you know, like I say over and over again, being a saint is a really rotten job, you know. <laughs> Brings nobody joy at all. And I think that was all really hard for them. It's nerve-wracking because you're writing your version of, of their mom, you know, and you you don't want to offend anybody. But on the other hand working on Teresita section on my website and those family members we've invited to actually write their own memoir. I oh, will post that's it. Fabulous. Yeah, because people are starting to do MA and PhD work on my auntie, you know, it's kinda <laughs> weird. So it'd be nice to be able to go straight to the family and get their version. How do they feel about the book? Ah uh, so far the, so, both of the books I yeah, say. I think so far really well though, you know, one of the cousins I've noticed is getting a little crabby and he, he sort of wrote to me and said so my grandfather really the drunken idiot clown you make him a and so I wrote back and I said well I, I didn't mean to make him a drunken idiot clown I said I think he's first of all he's probably the most popular character I've ever written mm -hmm. and uh, he's pretty heroic in his own way but he's you know he's also human mm -hmm. and he's faced with a lot of things that drive him crazy so he, he's comedic but he knows he's comedic if he were an idiot and didn't know it that's a different thing but he takes part in the comedy he knows he's larger than life and that's what's for me so so funny about him well there's like this extraordinary nobility to your humor 
Oh, you know, there really is. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan of, um, writers of literature who employ humor to reflect a larger human experience. I think neglecting humor. You've got to. Leaves out. Oh, I, I agree. Enormous amount. I agree. It's, you know, I tell my writing students, laughter is a virus that infects us with humanity. And if you laugh with someone, it's very difficult to hate them thereafter. You know, and there's a certain kind of laughter, which I talk about in both books, which is that, unfortunately, the evil laughter that you hear in atrocities. At every atrocity, if you find, even at, at the Sand Creek Massacre, even at Wounded Knee, the, the killers are laughing. They're having a great time. And uh, nowadays, in the t days of video, you can find any number of videos of people hurting other people or women. And the men are laughing, and it's really terrifying. That's a bad, that's an evil kind of laugh. I don't mean that kind of laugh. I mean the laughter between the two of us over over breakfast, you know, or the laughter we have seeing something that makes us both happy. And I think that kind of, it, you know, laughter is either a weapon, I think, against someone, i.e. this new idiotic assault on Ms. Fluke by Rush Limbaugh. You know, that's not funny. And it's somebody with great power using laughter to belittle someone. Um, but then there's that other one, which unites us. And I've always been fascinated by that. And I think it was during Devil's Highway when I, when I saw Border Patrol guys and undocumented people laughing together about something that shocked me. And I thought, wait, wait, they're humans together too? You know? And uh, I, felt, I felt really more solid about that. I just can't help myself. I like to have, read books that are funny. There are so many amazing lines in this book. <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, well, all pleasure, Thomas says, could and should be doubled. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and his great, his dialogue about the bees, you know, but my, my all-time favorite, though, the top, which I've been repeating to writers all over AWP, is um, he was the Hidalgo of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Right. But your narrative style is is actually it's it's really quite fascinating. I mean, I find it to be this sort of boiling stew of of humor, of glimmers of of even postmodernism, of myth, of reality, all rendered in these incredibly lush and poetic tones. You seem to find color and music even in the simplest of actions, like <laughs> they crunched thin cookies that blew ghosts of powdered sugar into the air as they breathed. So I'd like to actually ask you, how does poetry inform your fiction? How does totally, yeah, totally. My secret: Japanese poets. Write it down. Yeah, write it down. I'm tell I, I, it's serious. I, I, I tell people, you know, here's my secret for Hummingbird's Daughter. It's about <laughs> thirty-two thousand haiku in a row. That's basically, you know, I, I, I'm always thinking about. I don't know, something happened to me. You know, you, I, I come out of Tijuana, I come out of the barrio and the ghetto, and then I go to sort of working class suburb white San Diego, where all Mexicanness not only disappears, but is suddenly verboten and filthy and horrible. And my, that entire life until I get to college, I didn't even know any Latinos wrote or published or anything. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew there was, you know, mariachi music or whatever, but I didn't know there was art, right? Yeah. How sad is that? Yeah. Um, maybe Don Quixote. Somewhere off in the mists, I know there's a Don Quixote, you know, so you think it's a donkey <laughs> named Don Hody. Quixote. <laughs> yeah. There's a donkey's named Hody. Kid's book, probably. <laughs> and then I get to college, and, you know, as soon as I go to college, 
people there recognized Luis as a Spanish name, first of all. You know, since we moved to the suburbs, I was Luis. Hey, Luis. And people would say, I thought you was French, man, you know. It's totally because I don't look Mexican, I guess, right? But I get to Luis, and then we start reading this stuff. Neruda, you know, Alfonsina Storni, Borges, García Márquez, Vargas Llosa. I was like, oh, my God, Unamuno. You know, these books, Carlos Fuentes. And I thought, oh, holy cow. And then the music started coming. Facundo Cabral and Juan Manuel Serrat from Spain. That was just incredible. So in the middle of all that awakening, right, and explosion, I take a class with a Chinese scholar, Lim Yip, Dr. Yip. And Dr. Yip starts exposing me to Chinese poets. Li Po, Tu Fu, Wang Wei, Han Shan. I was like, what? What is this? It was the most astonishing revelation. So I began reading Asian poets as a habit. And the Chinese led to the Japanese. And I read Korean poets now, but in 95, in the, in the midst of the struggles to do Hummingbird, I moved to Tucson. And I was having a really hard time. All my life collapsed around me and, you know, the spirits were flying and I was trying to do this medicine work and I could not concentrate in any way on reading. And so I started buying haiku books. And that was the that was the transformation for me when I realized that I was very serious about these haiku poets. And I started reading the books about haiku and about the elements of haiku and you know, the Japanese and Zen concepts behind that poetry and that vision. And uh, you know, the concepts of wabi sabi, you know, the kind of sorrow and compassion involved in life. And then the realization as I was writing that Hummingbird's Daughter in some ways is an Asian story. The healing things, the stuff where she makes herself too heavy to move, that's true, it's in the record. The cowboys, when she was a teenage girl, couldn't move her. But that's a Tai Chi trick. Tai Chi masters do it. And so I started getting this sense of a kind of a universal matrix of sacredness that didn't care about churches, didn't care about politics, didn't care about skin color, or language, but there's this sacredness present. Free of religion, you know, free of even God, if you don't want to go there, but it's it's here. And medicine people go there. That's what they tap into. And when that book came out, um, it was picked as the all-city read in San Francisco. <laughs> I was doing a reading in San Francisco, and lo and behold, a, an old, old Chinese woman was there, sitting in the front row, and she came up to me, and she said, I know what your book is about. And I said, what's it about? She said, Tai Chi. I know. I was like, hallelujah. You know? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, it is about Tai Chi. It's about Chi. You know, it was so cool. And as, as, as you're writing a thing like that, and these teachers appear, medicine people, you know, I was, then people like yoga teachers appear and martial artists. Every time I needed something new, a teacher would appear and you start to feel like you're being led in a way. So that's, that's, you know, poetry, and especially Asian poetry, and particularly, I think, the haiku masters are, are there a lot. Well, tell me, uh, we were talking briefly about Tucson. Tucson! <laughs> and I gotta, I gotta say, you know, this is a pretty fiery time for Arizona. Yeah, right. Um, are you band author there now? Or are I'm you the king of the band this? authors, yeah. Um, I had five books bands. I ended up being accidentally the guy with the most books banned. So that was that was it was great for my career. Up the sales, upped mm -hmm. 
fight Facebook and, and Twitter fans. So, but yeah, you know, it was, it was a tragic thing because this is the tail end of some really evil hearted soul crushing that's been going on in Arizona. Anti, let's face it, it's anti-Mexican, anti-native sentiment. And, um, you know, couch it as, well, ultimately, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, they, they've played a really interesting rhetorical game. They didn't ban the books. They annihilated Mexican American and ethnic studies. That's different. They say they came in the classrooms and took the books away from the students and they took all native American writers away. They took away Sherman Alexie, Leslie Mormon Silco, you know, Ophelia Cepeda who's a MacArthur genius grant poet, right? Tohono O'odham, the only voice of that desert that's that beautiful. And she's, they took it all away. And then they took away Shakespeare. They took away The Tempest, because The Tempest is anti-colonial. So if you put that in brown hands, you know, it's anti-American. And then they took away Thoreau, but everybody takes away Thoreau. (laughs) He's always gone. So that was just somehow too heartbreaking and too angering. And those students have been beautiful and heroic, um, very well-spoken. They've tried to protest and been punished. They've done walkouts and been punished. You know, in the Tucson school district, they have been doing their own ethnic studies on their own on weekends to read those books. And, uh, you know, it's just... And the catch-22 is that ethnic studies was taken apart and the books may be taught in other courses as long as they're not identified as ethnic studies. But as I understand the edict, if you do teach those books, then you could be fired. We will review whoever teaches. So, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of like, yeah, go ahead and teach it. However, catch-22 being it's not banned, but if you do teach it, you could be under review so that's a that's a really weird scene and for me it's odd because you know queen of america got the southwest books award as the best book about the southwest then all my books were banned and now this week coming up i'm going to the tucson festival books from keynote speaker so it's really kind of weird and the week after that i'm joining the libro traficante movement you know the book smugglers who are smuggling the banned books (laughs) <laughs> in crazy guerrilla theater back into Arizona. So that's a little too much Arizona for my taste, but <laughs> staying busy. <laughs> Are you working on a nonfiction book about Teresa next? Is that your <laughs> project? Well, here's the thing. People have been so fascinated with the journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll probably have to be braver than I've ever been if I do write that book. Because mm-hmm. I have to fess up to stuff people are going to say, you are out of your mind, you know. <laughs> They're going to think this is like the Travel Channel Ghost Adventure Show or something. Right. You did what? What happened? <laughs> but I saw stuff. And it's going to be hard to convince people, no, I did not take peyote. You know, this stuff <laughs> happens to you when you're out there with these teachers. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you get into this really amazing world of inferences and happenstance and synchronicity. And I always take to my heart one of the... The guy who was the model for the medicine man in Hummingbird, Manuelito, mm-hmm. when she goes to Misi Apache Medicine Man in the desert. It's sort of, first of all, that was a real guy in history. But I was introduced to a Chiricahua Apache Medicine Man, Manuelito. They call him Manny. And uh, he said something fantastic to me because he was very 
sophisticated. Over and over, the medicine people would say, this isn't magic, this is our science. This is science. You know, one of them said, we didn't have atom smashers. I didn't have a lab kit. I had my body, my soul, and the land. So this is science. It's really interesting. But he said to me, you know, it doesn't matter to me if my medicine is real or if I'm just telling you stuff to program the little computer in your brain. What's interesting to me is results. And I thought, wow, you know, so if there's some way to write a history of that, fortunately for me, I was doing a writing experiment the whole time, which was keeping a journal of the process for a writing group I had taught. And I would send dispatches. So there's, you know, there's, there's a friend of mine in California who has, I think it's like 2,500 page shelf in binders of my entire experience. So if I don't even remember it. You've got to do it. I know i got to do it. It's just going to take some time to <laughs> get up the gumption to go back there. But, yeah, I will do it one day. Thank you very much for speaking with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.